When suffering clouds your vision, how do you find Jesus in the pain? How should you respond when life hurts? Coming up, a conversation about suffering. Along the way, we'll gain valuable insights from the Old Testament character Job. Plus, we'll get you updated on all the headlines from the Middle East and share some intriguing Bible questions and answers. It's a full hour, and we call it The Land and the Book. Our host is Charlie Dyer, who is in Israel today. I'm John Geiger. And you know, you wonder sometimes, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever actually experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year, you can. In the lead-up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. Well, Charlie Dyer joins us today from Israel. Charlie, you have just finished the first of two back-to-back trips that you're on. How did that first one go, and are you ready for trip number two? Well, any time in Israel is a good time, and the group we had is wonderful. Uh, They actually started their trip home late last night and will arrive home later today. Now, as some of you know, I had knee replacement surgery just after Thanksgiving, so I'm still technically in recovery mode, but the knee itself held up better than expected. Uh, The good news now is that my wife and I have three free days before the next group arrives. Uh, We'll do some exploring in Jerusalem, but we'll also get caught up on our laundry and relax a little bit before we hit the ground running with group number two. Now, John, here are some of the impressions from the first trip. First, tourism is back. I've not seen any official numbers recently, but the number of buses at sites and the number of people at the hotels appears to be back to almost pre-COVID levels. Uh, in fact, John, we ran into a bunch of Land in the Book listeners on other tours here who uh, told us how much they appreciate the program, uh, both uh, listening on radio stations and on podcasts. The other thing I noticed, the rain Israel received in February definitely brought out the grass and flowers. Everything is green and lush. Well, almost everything. The Judean wilderness did have a blush of green above Jericho, but down by the Dead Sea, the land is still pretty barren. We experienced a day of rain that brought another half inch or so of rain, even down by the Dead Sea. Now, the other impression is that the reports of violence and unrest that you keep hearing on the news were confined to very limited areas. We've not experienced any of the difficulties, nor have virtually any other tour groups. Now, I'm physically tired, But spiritually, we're refreshed, and I think our first group of tourists are now heading home with fond memories of their time here in Israel. Well, I'm sure there are more than a few of those fond memories. You and Kathy do a great job. Now, Israel appears to be caught in the crosshairs of the United Nations at the moment. What is causing all the problems, and how is Israel responding, Charlie? (laughs) Well, there's an old pop song that was called Charlie Brown, and the recurring line in it was, Why is everybody always picking on me? Uh, I think that's the feeling here in Israel, and frankly, they're not being paranoid. The UN does seem to have it in for the Jewish state. In the last session of the UN General Assembly, more resolutions condemning Israel were passed than against the rest of the world combined. That's 15 anti-Israel measures compared to 13 against the rest of the world. 
And remember what's been happening in the rest of the world. I mean, Russia's year-long invasion of Ukraine, Iran's brutal suppression of protesters, Turkey's attacks against the Kurds, North Korea's firing of missiles, China's threats against Taiwan and their launching of spy balloons against the U.S. And, you know, the list could go on. And yet it's Israel that's singled out more times than all other countries put together. In fact, since 2015, the U.N. General Assembly has adopted 140 resolutions criticizing Israel, but only 68 against all other countries combined. Now, that's more than just lopsided. And it raises the question, why? I think the ultimate cause is anti-Semitism, and behind that, I believe we can see Satan's fingerprints. One of the more recent resolutions called for the International Court of Justice to probe Israel's relationship to the Palestinians, and the assumption is it's a one-sided case of oppression on the part of Israel. The UN also demanded that Israel give up its nuclear weapons, though it didn't demand the same of Pakistan, India, or North Korea. And Iran continues to push forward with its nuclear program, so why single out Israel? Israel rejects the condemnation as biased and politically motivated, and believes it's also based on a lack of understanding of their basic security concerns. You know, they're not paranoid. People are out to get them. Now, Israel isn't perfect. No country is. And they certainly have their faults and problems, but the sheer number of UN General Assembly resolutions passed against them suggests a deeper problem lies within the United Nations. You're listening to The Land and the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, you're taking a lot of uh, photographs, a lot of videos there outside the studio while in Israel, and you're posting those on our Facebook page. Uh, What kind of reactions are we getting? You know, I'm getting some pretty nice responses to those videos. What I'm trying to do uh, on the videos is provide everybody with like a one to two minute summary of what we did that day as a group. And then uh, in, in addition to the videos, I'm also putting pictures up of other things that uh, I think people might be interested in. So it's been a great response. But if people haven't looked, uh, they're there and available for them. So I hope they do take a look. They're quite spectacular. I've enjoyed them myself. And you'll find them all at our Facebook page. Just search for The Land and the Book. Story number three in our look at current events. Before the massive earthquakes hit Turkey, President Erdogan promised to make a formal call for elections by March 10. So has an election date been set? And more importantly, how much has the earthquake impacted those elections? Yeah, back on January 22nd, Turkey's president did promise to issue a formal call for elections on March 10. And his plan was to push forward elections by 35 days and hold them on May 14 rather than mid-June. Now, he chose that date because it was that date back in 1950 when a previous leader won the country's first free election. The earthquake created some serious logistical and practical problems for the elections and for Erdogan and his party. Uh, The pace of response to the devastation was widely criticized within Turkey, and the ruling parties being blamed in part for approving shoddy construction that allowed so many buildings to collapse. Even before the earthquakes hit, there was discontent over Erdogan's handling of the economy, which resulted in a slumping currency and a dramatic rise in the cost of living. Uh, Some are seeing a parallel to the elections that followed the last major quake in Turkey. Back in 1999, 17,000 people died in an earthquake, resulting in loss of support for the government. And that helped Erdogan's party triumph at the next election in 2002. And they've been in power ever since. Now, as one Turkish journalist noted, Erdogan came to power in the wake of the 1999 earthquake, and it looks like he could be voted out of office in the wake of the 2023 earthquake. 
These most recent earthquakes claimed thousands of lives, and they might also bury him in the wreckage. Now, some in his party were pushing to postpone elections, but Erdogan stuck fast to his plan. On March 1st, he officially announced that presidential and parliamentary elections will be held on May 14, despite the earthquake. Now, only time will tell if this turns out to be a wise or foolish gamble on his part. Imagine a robot with a sense of smell stronger than any other electronic device. Thanks to antenna from a locust? (laughs) This definitely sounds like something from Amazing Israel, so tell us about this latest innovation. Well, John, adjectives that some might use to describe this range from fascinating to disturbing or even unnerving. Uh, Scientists from Tel Aviv University connected a locust antenna to a small robot to give it a sense of smell stronger than any other electrical device. Uh, They first had to develop a robot capable of responding to signals from the environment. They then needed to develop a way to artificially keep the locust antenna alive and produce a method for communicating signals from the antenna to the robot. Uh, They let this hybrid biological sensor smell different odors while measuring the electrical activity each odor produced. By doing so, they created a library of smells. What they discovered was the sensitivity of this insect robot system is about 10,000 times higher than any other mechanical device in use today. They believe the technology could be put to use in new machines that could identify explosives or drugs or that could sniff out diseases or discover food that's about to turn bad. John the Baptist ate locusts, but someday we might put their antenna to use in ways he could never have imagined. And all this from a group of ultra-nosy scientists in amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events. Charlie Dyer, our host, reporting from Israel. One last question about Israel. You know, you and I were there more than a year ago in November, and it seemed at the time that tourists were coming back, but the support infrastructure wasn't quite fully populated. It wasn't fully engaged. Is that still the same, or are there still holes in the service side of things? Well, the good news is that the uh, service industry has been coming back. It's not where it used to be pre-COVID, but it's better than it was when we were there last time. Uh, Much like in the U.S., uh, the uh, people left their jobs, people left some of their occupations, and it left holes that still need to be filled. But the good news is it is coming back. We're, We're experiencing great service throughout Israel, and I appreciate that. That's great news. Appreciate that report, Charlie, and we'll pray for you as you continue in Israel. Full program today. Up next, Mike Novotny talks about finding Jesus in the pain. Questions and answers, we got those too here on The Land and the Book. You know, when people are are really having a tough time, some wiseacre is often heard to say, hey, don't complain and don't be surprised. Nobody gets through this thing called life alive, right? (laughs) Well, if that isn't a little ray of pitch black, I don't know what is. The reality is we all are going through something. Suffering affects every single one of us. But what do we do when life hurts? How can we see past our suffering, through our suffering? Those are important questions, again, because that is the experience that we all face. Coming up next, a conversation with Pastor Mike Novotny, When Life Hurts, here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, by the way, if we've never met. And before we dig into that conversation, dip into the book of Job, let's pause for a moment and take in this thought about reaching out to our Jewish friends. 
Some of us are under the impression that the best person to witness to a Jewish person is another Jewish person who's come to know Yeshua. So can Gentiles really be effective in sharing Christ? What do you think? Greg Savitt is with uh, Rock of Israel Ministries. What do you say, Greg? I want to answer that with yes, yes, and yes. 75% of Jewish people that come to faith in Messiah are from the witness of a Gentile. You do not need to have the gift of evangelism, but you need to know that Jesus said to go out and make disciples. You can ask your Jewish friend to take them to synagogue on a Friday night. And when you go to them, make sure you go out for coffee afterwards and ask lots of questions. Invite your Jewish friend to church. Make sure that you talk to your pastor and it's not a tithing message. (laughs) Find something on the Old Testament and then go out and ask questions. I mean, if you're interested in their faith and you have questions, I guarantee you they'll be interested in your faith. And that's a great way to share the gospel with them. That's Greg Savitt, who serves with Rock of Israel, sharing ideas on how you and I can reach out to our non-believing Jewish friends here on The Land and the Book. Pastor Mike Novotny is a pastor at The Core, a church in downtown Appleton, Wisconsin. He's also a spiritual leader and lead speaker for Time of Grace, a media ministry that reaches out to a national television audience. He's got a wife and two daughters and loves playing organized soccer, loves running long distances, and he reads any nonfiction he can get his hands on. It's great to be able to reconnect with Pastor Mike today, and thank you for being willing to tackle this subject of suffering with us because so many are hurting right now, wouldn't you say, Pastor Mike? Yeah, you know, I've really been shocked when this book came out. We did not expect it to be ordered and requested and purchased as much as it was. And it was just a reminder to me that, you know, some topics touch a few of us, but this is one topic that really touches all of us because sooner or later, life is going to hurt in a pretty substantial way. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who said it in one of his great messages, be careful how you meet people and greet people everybody's hurting over something. And that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's, I've seen that too, um, just over the years as, as being a pastor. Like as, as sad and as a downer, it can sometimes be to preach on pain and suffering. There are a few Sundays where people come and shake your hand with a firmer grip and tears in their eyes like those. So thanks for tackling this topic and handling it head on. And I want to uh, encourage people right up front that Mike's book, When Life Hurts, is definitely one you want to pick up. Um, you know, we've we've seen, you know, books before, but this one, as I said to you earlier, Mike, feels fresh. Uh, it feels real, and it just it feels immediately comforting. I think is how I would describe it. When life hurts, a link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Right now, though, I want you to dig into your past and a very personal story that comes from your own mom. Yeah. So I've had a fairly easy life. I sometimes say I, I know anything could change in a second, so I try to enjoy the day I have. But so much of my life is based on an intentional choice of faith that my mom made way, way back in 1981. So if someone asked me, well, you know, Mike, how did you become a pastor? I would say, well, I was in high school reading the Bible and something Jesus said struck me. And if someone asked, well, why were you reading the Bible in high school? I would say, well, because it's a really great pastor at my church and he challenged us to read the Bible. And for some reason I said yes. And if someone asked me, well, why were you at that church when the pastor came? I would say, well, because my mom dragged me sometimes when I was a teenager. <laughs> and if you, if you pushed and said, well, you know, why was your mom a church person? Well, that domino would go all the way back to 1981. I was just about a year old, and my younger brother James was born, except James was born really sick. And unfortunately, um, despite all the doctor's help, he didn't make it. So after six weeks, I, I have no memories of him myself. My 
my mom with three sons now had one son in heaven and only two sons left on earth. And I think of what a tempting spiritual moment that must have been for her. If God doesn't give you a child but takes a child away, what do you think of God? Mm. You know, if you're going to a church that says God is love and God has a plan for all of us, and this is the Sunday after you just had to bury your baby boy, do you believe that? Do you still think that God is good and that God, as First John 4 says, is love? Mm. And man, by the sheer grace of God, my mom said, I, I talked to her before I wrote this book, you know, she said, I, I knew like the church was the one place I could rely on. Mm-hmm. I knew that God and his love was the most stable thing that I needed in that moment. And I just think not everyone ends up there. You know, some people are so rattled by the, why did you let this happen, God, that they step away from Jesus or they step away from the scriptures or the church. And so I think of my, you know, my whole life story. I'm, I go to Bible college and meet my wife and I have two daughters with that woman. Like how, how much of my life would be different if the devil had won over my mom. Mm. And so I'm so grateful that, you know, like Job in Job chapters one and two, my mom was able to say through faith, God gives and God takes away. But either way, may the name of the Lord be praised. You know, as I, as I listen to you share that story, a little window opens up for me. You know, we don't suffer in a vacuum. There are people who are watching mm. us. We're, we're on stage, like it or not. Yes. And our response to that suffering is going to communicate something about what we really, really believe about the God we claim to worship. People are watching. Yeah. Uh, That should sober us, I think, and also encourage us as well. You know, sometimes, I never thought about this before the book of Job, but when people come to church on a Sunday after it's been a really hard, maybe even traumatic week, that maybe is the brightest their light will shine in their whole life. Hmm. If I just got a raise and a promotion, and we're pregnant, and hey, the whole family made it home for the holidays or whatever, and I go to church, well, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense. I mean, if God's giving me everything, why wouldn't I love him back in return and say mm-hmm. a few prayers and, and go, to, go to worship? But if God has taken from me, and I still pray the Lord's Prayer, and I still sing the praises of Jesus, and I, I still give my offering, there's something, what the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 says, that's the proven genuineness of faith. It proves that I'm not just doing all this religious stuff because God's given me an easy life. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it because God is worthy because he gave me his only son. So I've really come to appreciate people who shuffle in on a Sunday after the worst week yes, and they still fold their hands and close their eyes after some tremendous loss. That is faith at such a strength that didn't exist before the pain came. When life hurts, that's our focus today. As we talk about suffering through the life and lens of the biblical character Job, our guest is Pastor Mike Novotny, who's written When Life Hurts. Well, what caught you off guard as you went through the book of Job and you spent a lot of time there? Anything sort of pop out at you that you thought, wow, I never saw that before? Um, yeah. So one of the huge questions that frames the book of Job is the question, why? So, you know, why is this happening? Why again and again and again and again is Job suffering? And I love the fact that the book brings that up because that's our question too, Right if God would just give us a good reason why, we can get through a lot of things. But if we don't know why I lost my job, why my mental health has always been a struggle, why my spouse left me, those are the most agonizing times to suffer. And, you know, in the middle of the, what, in Job chapters two or three is when his friends show up and they argue back and forth, really trying to figure out the answer to that question. His friends are the ones who say, why are you suffering, Job? It's probably because you did something bad. Why did your children die, Job? Well, behind your back, they must have been living a sinful life. 
And Job fights back and says, no, I, I know that's not the reason why I'm a godly man. It must be God who's let mm. me down or stopped to be just. And right in the middle of the book, I, I don't think I ever saw this before. It's in, uh, I believe, chapter 28. There's this really weird, totally missable section about where to find true wisdom. So I consider this the book's answer. Where do you find the answer? Why? And it, it's this weird, like, if you dig down into the earth and you, you know, tunnel looking for precious metals, like, where do you find it? And the book's answer is, yeah, deeper than that is where God has hidden the answer to your question, why? And the book has this quote. It says, that's hidden from the eyes of every living thing. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. So it's a poetic way of saying, listen, if you want to dig around for the rest of your life, trying to answer, God, why did you let this one thing happen? You will never find it. Hmm. God has hidden that answer in his own heart and mind. And you can yell at heaven for the next 50 years if you want. You will not find the answer. So what wise people do is instead of needing a why, they focus on the who. Yes. Who, who is God? What do I know for sure about him? He hasn't answered this question, but do I know that he loves me? Do I know that he's for me? If I cling to the cross and look at Jesus, I, I know the answers to those questions. And so to me, you know, that, that surprised me. It's such a great—it's not an intellectually satisfying answer in some ways. You don't know the why. You right. won't know the why. But you do know the who. Hmm. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. I think the uh, quote I'm going to share from the book right now really sums it up. You write, the next time the devil messes with your faith, you can say this, why is this happening? I don't know why but I know who I am. I really don't know the answer to the suffering, but I know who God is, my Savior. Remember who, and you won't need a why. Beautifully written. Yes, amen. That, that to me was just absolutely profound. Um, I, I want to take you back, though, to the reaction of Job's friends, who I'm sure came with good intentions. <laughs> and uh, you, you apply some of their conversation to conversations that we have with those who are grieving, suggesting there's a right time and a wrong time for us to proclaim, well, praise Jesus to somebody who's just experienced a great <laughs> loss. So when are those times? Yeah, so after I preached um, in one of the messages about community being pretty messy, I listed, I think, 10 different things that I think people do when a friend is suffering. Like maybe you just be there. You don't have to say anything. Or you could say you're sorry. I'm so sorry this happened to you. You could share your own story. I remember when I lost my child. You could offer to help them with groceries. You could offer the hope of eternal life. You could preach a silver lining. Well, at least you saw this. You could talk about God's plans or God's presence, that Jesus can sympathize or that Jesus will save you. I think that's 10 total. And uh, one of our small groups at church was uh, talking about that message afterwards. And apparently it was the most robust conversation because all of them said to all those things, sometimes that helps. <laughs> you know, when, when someone says, well, how can I help you? Sometimes that's really helpful. And other times you're like, I don't, I don't want to make any more decisions. My, my thoughts are already swirling. Yes. Yeah. And so that just so reinforced the idea that it's messy. Yes. Like there are good answers. No one has a script where the perfect way for me to help you or you to help me. I really felt that too. So my wife's father died about five years ago. And that was probably the closest death in our family that I had mm -hmm. to see up close. And, you know, my wife and I wanted to help my mother-in-law, but we didn't always know what to do mm -hmm. or what to say. You know, those days where does she want us to bring up her husband who's gone? Is that going to be a sad memory for her? Or does mm -hmm. she want to remember him and honor all those years together? So <laughs> I just, 
I came to embrace the inescapable reality that this is going to be hard. I'm going to mess up. Job's friends did. I will. You will. Yes. But we're going to have to forgive each other a lot through that process because um, community is such a, a messy necessity. Mike Novotny is a pastor at the core, a church in downtown Appleton, Wisconsin. You know, it seems to me that the problem of pain and suffering is really a two-edged sword. With one whack, we ourselves are injured on a certain level by tragedy that comes our way. But the double whammy is the fact that in so many cases, our faith comes unhinged and we turn our backs on God. Would you right now, in a moment remaining, encourage that listener who feels like maybe they're teetering a bit spiritually, maybe about to give up on God? Yeah, before you do, here's my simple advice. Read the Bible. Pick a person, any person in the Bible, and I bet they suffered too. So we live in a world where we try to escape pain, and then we're shocked when it happens. Uh, We have medicine and hospitals, and, you know, we don't live with frequent death like many people did in the past. But if you look, I mean, did the Apostle Paul suffer after following Jesus? Yes. Did David suffer, a man after God's heart? Yes. Did Job, who was so godly, suffer in profound ways? Did John suffer? He was exiled when he wrote Revelation. Did Jesus suffer, who never did anything wrong? Yeah, so expectations are everything in life. And I would say before the devil makes you think, oh, God failed me, or he promised me this easy, perfect life. No, 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 he didn't. He actually said this world is so painful, it feels like you're groaning as in labor pains. But he will get you through it. He will deliver you from it. And one day when you see his face, you're going to believe what Romans 8 verse 18 says, that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that is about to be revealed in us. Wow. A great way to land this conversation with Pastor Mike Novotny. His book, When Life Hurts, a link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thank you, Pastor Mike. We look forward to another visit. And right now, we're looking forward to a visit from Charlie Dyer. Your questions, his answers next on The Land and the Book. might be true that curiosity killed the cat, but it's good for humans. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. And maybe as you open the book, as in the Bible, you become curious about a hundred different things. That's good. That shows that you're reading, you're processing, you're wondering. But if by chance you've got a question that's got you stuck, what do you do with it? Well, could I suggest you send us an email? Thelandandthebook at moody.edu is how you connect. And then our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, will take it from there. Charlie, it takes, what, six weeks, six months to get these questions answered? Oh, man, I, I'm probably nuts, John. I try and respond within 24 to 48 hours uh, via email. And then, of course, we try and get it on the program as quickly as we can. That might take a while because we have a little bit of a backup, but they will hear from me as, as quickly as I can get to it. Unless, of course, he's traveling in Israel, which you're about to do a whole lot of. Let's get to our first question of the day from Priscilla. She says, our Bible study has been looking at Exodus, and we know that there were at least a million Israelites, as there were 603,000 men capable of fighting when they took the census. So how was the tabernacle able to take care of the sacrifices needed for so many people? Also, slaughtering an animal creates a lot of blood. How do you think that was dealt with? Yeah, well, I'd say several possible answers here. First, Israel didn't spend the entire 40 years in one place. So the tabernacle as a portable structure moved around, and One way they handled the issue was uh, just moving to another location. Now, that didn't happen on a daily or even weekly basis, so it it doesn't fully answer the problem. Uh, But the second observation I have is the tabernacle was on ground that didn't have stone or a wooden floor. It was dirt, and the dirt would have soaked up a lot of the blood. 
And in Leviticus 6, God gave a command on how to dispose of the ashes from the altar. They were placed beside the altar and then carried outside the camp. So it's possible the dirt from around the altar with the blood would have also been scooped up with the ashes and deposited outside the camp. Now, a third possibility, Israel didn't offer as many sacrifices as we might suppose. At Passover, a large number of animals were brought to be killed, but on most days, it may have been just the morning and evening sacrifices that were being offered for the nation. So the total number of sacrifices on a daily basis might not have been that great. And then finally, it's possible Israel simply didn't follow through with all the sacrifices expected by God. Uh, we do know that they didn't practice circumcision in the wilderness. Uh, Joshua 5.5 5 tells us that. And if they weren't following that command from God, it's possible they were failing to follow some of the other Mosaic commands, including some of the sacrifices. Here's a question from Ron, who listens to us on KPNO in Norfolk, Nebraska. Can you recommend some video series appropriate for small group Bible studies that will help create a deeper understanding of the need for Christians to support Israel and the importance of understanding the bond between Jews and Christians? Yeah, I have two suggestions here. Uh, One, if you go to the Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN, uh, CBN cbn.com, Uh, They have a number of excellent videos. In fact, they have one that's called Whose Land Is It? That I think does a good job of exploring the problem. And then second, Hatikva Films. It's H-A-T-I-K-V-A-H-F-I-L-M-S dot com. Uh, They have several videos that focus on Israel and the importance of supporting Israel for both the U.S. and the U.K. They have some including America and the Israel Effect blessing, curse, or coincidence, and Jerusalem, the covenant city. Uh, Just make sure you get the ones that are in the English version because they also have those in several other languages. This is the land of the book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Maybe you wonder, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Israel? Passover is coming up, and you might think you know the answer to that question, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Yeah, in the lead up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeandmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. Uh, This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Uh, To get this, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. Jeff says, I would like to get the theology straight in my mind about the application of Old Testament guidelines for today's living. And he takes us to Leviticus 18 and 19, Many similar examples where we find commands and we find the word shall in the authorized version anyway. He says, in my own mind, I feel like parts of these Old Testament laws are not for us today. How do we sort through all of these directives and commands and conclusively determine what are these laws that we should follow today and what are just for the Old Testament? I start with two important truths. And, And the first is this, there are fundamental distinctions in time uh, in the way that God deals with humanity. Uh, For example, God expected his followers in Old Testament times to offer animal sacrifices. Uh, He placed restrictions on Israel in regard to clean and unclean foods. But we don't have to offer a sacrifice today, and we aren't under those same dietary restrictions. So there is a difference in time in the way God deals with humanity. Now, the second principle, though, is God's character doesn't change over time. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what God considers holy is always holy. 
what God considers sinful is always sinful. Now, here's how I see those two truths working out. Some of the commands God gave in his word to Israel relate specifically to his moral character. And what he declared to be sinful then remains sinful today. For example, adultery is always wrong, no matter which economy you're in, because it's a prohibition based on God's moral character. Those are the moral commands of Scripture, and they transcend the different dispensations or times and ways God worked with humanity. Other commands are ceremonial or religious in nature. Uh, The way to God involves sacrifice, and that changes from Adam and Eve being clothed by an animal being put to death to uh, the sacrifice of Abel that was acceptable to Noah, to Abraham, to the Mosaic law. There were slight changes, but there were different ways God said to approach him. Uh, the specific details uh, involved changed over time when God provided additional revelation. Now, finally, in addition to the moral and the ceremonial, there are also civil commands. Uh, just like every state in our country has its own laws governing its people, so God provided specific laws to govern Israel as a nation. For example, he required people to construct a parapet on the roof to keep someone from accidentally falling off. Now, we don't have to do that. We don't have flat roofs today. So uh, that seems to be uh, something that's not for us, but it was for Israel. So when studying the Bible, first try to determine the specific economy or dispensation and then see if the command is moral, if it's grounded in God's character, or if it applies to the civil nature that he had for them or the ceremonial law. Uh, and if, if it's civil or ceremonial, it's not directly for us, but there could be a principle behind it that transcends all eras. Uh, for example, I don't need a parapet on my roof. But the principle behind the command was God's concern that we take responsibility to prevent someone from accidentally hurting themselves on our property. Now, that can be applied today by uh, following laws that are designed to keep us and others safe on our property. I'm I'm rambling, but the command here, the point is, uh, those commands in Leviticus 18, well, those are based on God's moral character. The commands in Leviticus 19 are civil in nature. One set applies to us today. uh, The other does not. Here's a rather long but important question, I suspect with an equally long answer from John. He wants to know whatever happened to true Israel. God promised to preserve his people Israel, and we can obviously see there are Jews still around today, and and there are some Messianic Jewish congregations today, but these are fairly recent. Are the descendants of all these believers still part of the Abrahamic covenant, even if they no longer know they are of Jewish ancestry? I've heard it said that people who no longer know about their Jewish ancestors are no longer part of Israel. Seems odd that God would preserve his people in unbelief, but let believing Jews drop out of the covenant. There are just a number of conclusions. Maybe the church is Israel. So when a Jew comes to faith, he switches from the unbelieving portion to the believing portion of Israel. I'm not happy with this view since I had always believed that the Bible taught a distinction between Israel and the church. Seems to me Jewishness doesn't matter anymore and that their survival is just a fluke. The problem with that is that it has God backing out of a promise. So why did not God preserve a believing Israel? Well, and I think the key for this is to go to Romans chapter 11. It's the one section in the Bible where God speaks directly to the issue of Israel's unbelief, the remnant, and the relationship between Israel and the church. And and here's what he says there, basically. In verses 1 to 6, he says, God hasn't rejected the Jewish people, and it's proven by the reality that Jewish people are still coming to faith. In verses 11 to 16, he says the the rejection of Jesus and the gospel by the majority of the Jewish people doesn't take ethnic and national Israel beyond the point of recovery. That's part of God's larger plan to bring Gentiles and Jews to the point of blessing. He gets to verses 17 to 24, and there he says Gentiles need to guard against arrogance and assuming they've replaced Israel. 
And I think that's important for us to remember. And then in verses 25 to 27, perhaps the key part, he says, God has a future for the Jewish people, and it's connected to the return of Jesus. There's a time coming when all Israel will be saved, he said. That doesn't mean every single Jewish person, but instead it's a national revival when the Jewish people as a whole will come to recognize their Messiah. And he connects it with two scriptures that relate to the second coming of Jesus. The final thing is that the Jewish people as a whole might be enemies, he says right now, but they're still an elect nation and they're beloved by God because of the covenant promises he made to them. And verses 28 and 29 are so crucial. Uh, God's gifts and his callings are irrevocable. God won't break his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm thankful for that because if he broke his promises to the Jewish people, well, that means he could break his promises to us as well. And uh, it's important to know God doesn't break promises. Well, that's a really, really huge question. Thank you for asking it, John. And thank you for sticking with us as our Land of the Book broadcast continues next with Charlie Dyer's devotional. Always something to think about as he connects us with a passage of Scripture and a place in Israel. Next. It's funny how when you read the Gospels, they all have a slightly different take on the miracles. The miracles of Jesus, of course. Some include this account, some another, different details. They all, of course, uh, work together. Nobody ever contradicts another. And yet, some of those miracles are only mentioned in all four of the Gospels. We're going to take a look at one of them coming up next on the land of the book, Charlie. What are you calling this thing? I'm calling this one the quadroscopic miracle. Okay, big word. I mean, it almost sounds like a science fiction novel. We'll get to that devotional after we hear this testimony from somebody who's been to the Holy Land and shares this with you and me. I'm calling just to tell you about my experience of touring Israel in 2012, um, the end of December. And um, it was just awesome to be sailing on the Sea of Galilee on the last Sunday in 2012. It was just an awesome experience, and uh, the Bible has just come alive for me since that time. Um, I've been able to share with others my experience and the experience of my husband um, when we toured. Uh, we went along with First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina. Pastor Wendell Eastep um, was our tour leader, and uh, we really appreciate him taking his time to take others with him, and he does this on an annual basis. And, uh, we just feel blessed and honored that we were able to travel with him this past year and look forward to the next trip. Thank you. Charlie, I, I uh, am really intrigued with this uh, devotional title, The Quadroscopic Miracle. What do you mean by that? Ah, uh, that's what I'll explain to you here, John. Uh, but I want to start by saying this. You know, visiting Israel really changed the way I read the Bible. The Bible went from words on a page to visual images in my mind. Since then, to help teach the Bible, I've used all sorts of visuals. I took over 8,000 slides and about 20,000 digital photos that I use in classes, and I even purchased a 3D camera to take stereoscopic pictures that could help someone see the true depth of the mountains and the valleys. I shot video using everything from Super 8 film to my own smartphone. Nothing matches the reality of actually standing at the spots and opening up the Bible. But for those who can't make it to Israel, the images do help make the sites uh, come alive. But there's one technique I've never used, and that's quadroscopic photography. Now, this short-lived technology involved taking pictures using a camera with four lenses. The film had to be sent out for special processing, and it produced a holographic 3D photo 
that included depth and slight movement. Uh, the process eventually went the way of 8-track tapes, Betamax, and 3D televisions. And in this age of virtual reality headsets, quadroscopic photography was little more than a passing fad. But today, I want to bring back quadroscopy. No, not quadroscopic photographs. I want to look at the only quadroscopic miracle in the Gospels. It's the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And just as quadroscopic photography provided the additional dimensions of both depth and movement to photos, looking at this miracle through all four gospel accounts provides us with some additional details we might not have noticed before. So let's head to the lower slopes of the Golan Heights on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. We're actually here at the perfect time of year. How do we know that? Well, Mark adds a tiny detail in his account that lets us know the general time of year. He says, Jesus had the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Well, by May, the grass turns brown, so this happened either in the winter or early spring. And John helps us narrow the time down even more. He reports that the Jewish Passover feast was near. Passover is just three weeks away right now, so this is about the time of year the miracle took place. Now look at the hillside. The green grass and colorful wildflowers are beautiful. Now, if there's any downside to this location, it's the remoteness of the site. Uh, we don't know the exact spot where the miracle took place, but we do know that it was in this general area and that there weren't any towns nearby. It's a three-mile hike to Bethsaida or Gergesa and a five-mile uphill climb to Gamla. No wonder the disciples wanted to break off the meeting and send everyone away. It would take the people an hour or more to reach a village where they could buy something to eat. Jesus surprised the disciples when he told them to feed the multitude. And neither Matthew nor Luke record their primary objection, but Mark and John do. In Mark, the disciples say, well, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? John lets us know that it was Philip who actually spoke those words for the group. What he actually said was that it would cost 200 denarii to feed the crowd. But eight months is a good approximation since one denarius was a normal day's wages for a laborer. Well, we know what happened next. This is when the boy with the five loaves and two fishes enters the story. And the Apostle John seems to provide a number of unique details at this point. For example, John takes time to let us know that it was Andrew who discovered the boy with the loaves and fishes. John is also the one who observed that the loaves were made of barley, not wheat. And he uses a different word for fish than the other writers. While they used the general word for fish, ichthus, John used the word apsarion, which referred to cooked or preserved fish. When used in connection with bread, one lexicon suggests it might be understood as a tidbit. We might best understand the word to refer to a small preserved fish, perhaps like a sardine. Five round barley cakes, similar to tortillas, and two dried and salted sardines. No wonder Andrew asked skeptically, but how far will they go among so many? Well, Jesus ordered the disciples to organize this impromptu potluck. Luke adds that Jesus asked the disciples to have the people sit in groups of about 50 each. Now, if you've ever tried to organize a large group, you know it's much like herding cats. Uh, perhaps that's why Mark, who no doubt heard this account from Peter, says they finally sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Likely some people didn't want to move and groups just merged together. So how many were fed? Mark, Luke, and John report that about 5,000 men were present and fed. But now it's Matthew's turn to shine. Perhaps this tax collector was simply more attuned to the numbers, but he ends by saying, 
The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. The total number could easily have exceeded 10,000. Now, based on my experience at church potlucks, I think we can assume that the men ate more than the women and children, but still, a lot of food was consumed. The crowd has now dispersed. We're down at the shore as the disciples begin rowing back across the top of the lake toward Capernaum. Jesus remained on the mountain to pray, but as the sun settles below the mountains to the west, what lessons can we take away from this quadroscopic miracle on the hills along the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee? Well, I see two, one positive and one negative. On the positive side, I see a miracle that so impacted the disciples that it was recorded in all four Gospels. And placing all the details together allows us to see why. Like Moses, Jesus went up on a mountainside in a wilderness. And like Moses, Jesus taught the multitude. And also like Moses, the multitude was miraculously fed. And even the leftovers were symbolic. Twelve baskets full remained, suggesting Jesus was sufficient for the entire nation of Israel, with twelve being both the number of the tribes and the number of completion or perfection. But on the negative side, I see those who witnessed the miracle missing the point. John says the crowd responded by intending to come and make him king by force. They saw the free food and missed the greater message. When Jesus later explained that he was the true bread of life and stressed the necessity of response, they began to grumble about him. And the disciples themselves misunderstood. Following this miracle and the later feeding of the 4,000, Jesus has to remind them of the two miracles and then add, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Sadly, we're like the disciples. We read about Jesus' words and deeds, but we tend to forget. And when new problems arise, we default to our old ways. We need to constantly be reminded to hear, trust, and obey Jesus. This week, take some time to read The Feeding of the 5,000 in all four gospel accounts. Underline all the unique details you find there, and then ask God to help you remember the lessons of this miracle. Charlie, I like that idea of uh, reading the uh, four gospel accounts of that miracle. Easy to just read one or two and walk away with our preconceived ideas because we've all heard the story a hundred times. But this idea of all four, that's that's unique. Thank you for that challenge. Ah, You're welcome. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, and uh, maybe you'd like to hear it again or share the program with a friend. Charlie, how could somebody do that? Uh, the easiest way to do it is to go to our website and to uh, click on the Listen Live tab there, and they can listen to it at any time at their convenience. All right, thelandandthebook.org is the website if you've never been there, thelandandthebook.org. Also there, information about our guests, past programs, lots of other good stuff as well, links to the ministries of Moody Bible Institute, all kinds of things that I think will encourage you in your walk with Jesus. You'll find it at thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.